So a couple weeks ago, we uh, started off this new year with a week of 24-7 prayer. And uh, one of the things we did was set up a prayer room upstairs, uh, kind of, um, you know, for, for people who used it, just an immense blessing. And one corner of that prayer room was kind of like the artsy corner. It was uh, like there was like paint and crayons and like a keyboard and piano and Play-Doh, that kind of thing, which is really not my jam, like at all. Like, Last time I painted anything besides a wall was like grade seven probably. So, but I'm sitting there one day and uh, in, in a session of prayer and I have this like flash of inspiration uh, and I want to I wanna show you my, my work of art. I created a work of art. Uh, I want you to just be in awe of this for a second. Notice the dynamism of the wind. You see those, uh, the wisps of wind, very distinct and um, that flame, it's like, it's like a photograph, right? It's like caught like mid flicker, and then that's probably the most realistic human finger you've, you've ever seen. Uh, so worth, worth thousands one day, I'm sure. But, um, but what, what, of course, the thing I want to really help you focus on is the content. Uh, because as I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm praying um, for the Holy Spirit to come and to, and to visit us as a church. And as I'm praying, I, I just have this thought, this realization that um, God visits us and speaks to us in, in a bunch of different ways, right? He sometimes comes as a consuming fire, and other times like this flickering flame, sometimes like a rushing mighty wind, other times a whisper, and we need to be listening for both. We need to be open to both of these kind of ways of God, and that's what I came back to again as I went through the passage and, and kind of prayed through it in preparation for, for today was that same kind of theme. Uh, last week, we got back into the book of Acts, and we, uh, we kind of picked it up where Paul and Silas and Timothy actually as well, they've reached the end of the road in terms of churches that they had kind of planted, that the cities they had been to before. And there's this God-given desire to bring the gospel to new places. But every, every place that Paul tries to go at first is shut down by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't let, doesn't let Paul and these other guys go. And so it's like God kind of funnels them to, to Troas, this port city that we said last week may have felt like a dead end. Like they got there and they could have said, okay, God, now what? Where, where do you want us to go? You shut down everything else. You brought, to us, brought us to the small place. And some of us have been in that kind of situation before. And then one night, uh, Paul has this vision of a man from Macedonia, which would be kind of modern day Greece. And uh, this man tells him, we need you. We need help. Macedonia needs the gospel, needs Jesus. And so Paul and Luke, now Luke has joined them, and Timothy and Silas and maybe others, they get onto a boat, they sail across to Europe, and their first stop is in Philippi. And that's, that's where we're going to be today. So uh, pray with me, and then, um, and then we'll get into Acts chapter 16. So Lord, thank you so much for this morning. What a, what a blessing. Lord, just to, to lift your name, to glorify you, to celebrate who you are and what you have done. Lord, regardless of the circumstances of our lives, you are the same from the rising to the setting of the sun. Lord, you're faithful, you're good, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're our rock, our fortress. Lord, the, the found, firm foundation for our lives. And I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that your word is this foundation that it is this, this reliable uh, witness as to who you are and what you have done. And I pray today as we spend time in your word, Lord, just that you'd build us up and speak to us and move in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts 16, verse, we're going to pick it up in verse 11. 
from Troas, we put out to sea, and we sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. And from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So Philippi, first stop here. A couple things about Philippi. Uh, Paul, Luke says that this was one of the, or the leading city in that district. Not politically, it wasn't the capital. But, uh, but historically, it had some significance. It was the site of a major battle between Octavian, who later became Caesar Augustus, between him and Brutus and Cassius, who were the assassins of Julius Caesar. So this isn't going to surprise you very much, but I don't read Shakespeare. But, um, but Philippi makes it into a Shakespeare play because of that battle. So significant historically, a, a rich place, wealthy place, an abundance of natural resources. And most importantly for our kind of time today, Philippi was a Roman colony, which meant that it was like, it was kind of Rome away from Rome. It was, it had all the same benefits that Rome and other Roman cities had, like in terms of tax-free and, and citizenship granted to its, uh, to its residents, those kinds of things. Philippi mostly settled by uh, Roman ex-soldiers, retired military guys, who Caesar was grateful for, that they had fought his battles, but he didn't really want them close to him. He really didn't want these guys around, rough around the edges, so give them a parcel of land in Philippi, let them live out their days. But as a result, Philippi was intensely loyal to Rome. They took allegiance to the Roman emperor really, really seriously, which is like, that's a little bit of foreshadowing. Like in a movie, you know, you get a little glimpse of the future. That's a little foreshadowing for what's gonna come later on in the story. So that's Philippi. When uh, Paul and friends get there, the first place they, they go on the Sabbath is to this uh, little place by the river. They're looking for uh, a place where people are gathering together to worship, which tells us that almost certainly there was no synagogue in Philippi. And uh, for a synagogue, you only needed 10 Jewish men. That was kind of the custom. 10 Jewish men, you can have a synagogue. Apparently, Philippi didn't even have that. So very, very small Jewish population. All you've got is a number of, mainly it seems, women who are gathering by the river to pray. So at first glance, Philippi is not looking very promising. They're, they're by the river, and they meet this woman named Lydia. And Lydia is called a worshiper of God, which probably puts her in the category of a Gentile God-fearer. So these were Gentiles. We've talked about these people. They were Gentiles, non-Jews, who were drawn to Judaism, different aspects of it. Maybe they, they kind of renounced idols and, and said, no, I'm just going to worship the one true God, but I don't want to go all the way and become a convert. So, so that's what this kind of category of people was. That seems to have been Lydia. Lydia is from Thyatira, which is a city in Asia Minor. And, uh, and there was a synagogue there, significant Jewish population. So it's probably where she encountered this whole uh, worship of, of Yahweh and was, was drawn to that. Now, interesting little side point. So she's from Asia, 
And, uh, and Paul really wanted to go to Asia, but got shut down by the Holy Spirit, right? So it's like the Holy Spirit says, no, you can't go to Asia, but the very first convert in Europe is from Asia Minor. It's just a kind of a little fun fact. Little connection, right? That's, that's kind of what God does sometimes. He takes these, these pieces, these seemingly dissonant pieces in our lives, and he brings them together into, into one whole. He just has a, has a way of doing this. Now, Lydia is a dealer in purple cloth. She is a, she's a businesswoman. She's an entrepreneur, very successful. Whether she is um, single or widowed or whatever her status is, she seems to have her own household, servants and everything. So this is a very kind of, this is a rare kind of woman in the first century, right? An, An independent entrepreneur, wealthy woman who's got her own business going on. And she clearly is very thirsty to know more about who God is. Despite all her success, all her status, she deeply desires to know who God is. That's why she's hanging out by the river on, on Saturday, right? She could be at home watching Netflix, but she's here at the river. She's praying together with other people. She's a Gentile who has associated herself with Judaism. There's something going on in her life. And so as Paul shares the, the message, the good news about Jesus, we read that she responded, that the Lord opened her heart and she responded to the message. Now, take a look at, at all the parties involved in this, this decision she makes, right? You've, you've got Paul, obviously. Paul is the one talking about Jesus. Lydia cannot put her faith in Jesus unless she hears from Paul about Jesus, right? This is what Paul himself says in Romans 10. How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So Paul is a pretty important figure in this. Lydia also obviously has a part to play in this. She's not some robot on autopilot, right? She's not forced to be baptized against her will. I think Ned Flanders did that with Homer and Maggie once in the 90s, but that's not what's going on here. That's my only Simpsons reference you'll ever get from me, okay? I just, I saw a clip of that. Anyways, uh, that's not what's happening here, right? She has a choice. She makes, she makes a decision to respond to what she has heard. And from a human perspective, that's all that's going on. You've got, you've got Paul, and he's speaking, and you've got Lydia, and she's listening, and she goes, yeah, okay, makes sense. But Luke tells us that there is a, another party to the action here. He, he tells us that the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. That actually, behind the scenes, God is at work here. I mean, Paul is only there because God has brought him there, right? I mean, God had to shut every other door, funnel them to Troas, then give Paul a dream just to get him to Philippi in the first place. And way before that, Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He only becomes a preacher because Jesus basically smacks him in the face on the road to Damascus, turns his life around. I mean, God has been at work in Paul, bringing him to this place. And and then we read that God is at work in Lydia's heart, that, that God is the one softening her heart, shining light on her, enabling her to see that this good news about Jesus is actually what she has been longing for. So that's all Holy Spirit work. He's central in this whole story, which, which engages a key question that we have, doesn't it? This question we have, when someone comes to faith in Jesus, is it because... God essentially makes them do that? 
You know, do, do people have any choice or, or do people make that decision? You know, is, is it God or is it humans? And I think Luke's answer would be yes. <laughs> it's somehow it's both of these things. That, that God calls and sends Paul, but Paul actually has to respond in obedience. And that, that God is working in Lydia's heart, but she actually needs to respond, put her trust, and be baptized. That, that both of these things are happening, that God softens and initiates and sends, and that yet humans also have to respond in obedience to that. And together, these, these things somehow work in this divine mystery that we can't fully understand. Now, Lydia's decision to respond in faith to what God is doing in her life has two immediate impacts. The first is that she gets, she gets dumped, right? She gets, she gets baptized, her and her whole household. And this is what we see again and again in the New Testament, that baptism is the response to faith in Jesus. It's the response to what Jesus has done in someone's life. He died for me. He rose again, I die, I rise again in him. Over and over again in the New Testament, that's the response. And, uh, and you see it almost immediate with Lydia, right? She gets kind of baptized right then and there. Um, it's not like she waits until she's mastered Hebrew or memorized all 150 Psalms or can successfully defeat uh, Richard Dawkins in a debate or anything like that, right? It's just she, she trusts in Jesus and she's baptized, and so I guess my question for you today as well would be, if, if you have trusted in Jesus, if, if, he, if he has died for you, you believe that, you've received that, and you haven't been baptized, then what are you waiting for? That's New Testament, that's what happens next. So that's the first thing she does. And then uh, the, second, the second impact that we, that we see is this generosity. And we see this again and again in Acts as well, that when the Holy Spirit comes into someone's life, there's this, this generosity that just flows, that there's this kind of um, loosening of the hold that, that money and possessions and these kinds of things have on somebody. And maybe you're like, maybe I don't want to become a Christian then. Like, I kind of like having money and possessions. But, but it's not, there's nothing forced or imposed here, right? Like, Paul doesn't go, hey, I baptize you. You got to feed me for the next month. That's in the contract. You didn't see it. It's in the fine print. No, it's, it's, it's just this, like, this free outpouring of generosity. If God has given me this grace, then, then I want to I share this. I want to use my possessions. I want to use what I have to, to, to contribute to the kingdom, to bear witness to his work in the world. And so she pretty much begs Paul and, and, and friends to stay with her, right? There's just this like immediate kind of work of the Holy Spirit uh, bringing her into this, this place of radical generosity. I think what we see in Lydia's life is how God will sometimes work in someone's life almost through like a gentle whisper. You know, like this, this kind of wooing voice of the spirit where for a long time Lydia has had a soft heart. She, she, has, been, she has been open to the Lord. Paul shares the message. She doesn't really put up a fight, right? She doesn't need a lot of persuading. She hears it. She goes, yes, this is it. I'm all in. And it's just this kind of like gentle work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes that's all it takes, but not always. Because <laughs> if we look at what happens next in Philippi, we get a bit of a different story. Verse uh, 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. 
She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. That's what you get for sharing Jesus, guys. That's it. So in this, <laughs> in this passage, we, we meet a woman who's very, very different from Lydia, right? I mean, Lydia, successful, independent businesswoman. Here we, we've got a girl who is held in bondage as a slave. I mean, these, these, uh, these men are kind of exercise control over her, decide where she's going to go. All the money that she makes goes right to them. So she's, she's not independent. She's, she's in bondage. And not only to, to people, but she's in bondage to a spirit. And Luke tells us that, uh, well, the, the English translation says a spirit that predicted the future. But actually, if you were to read the original Greek, it says that she had a python spirit. That's literally the, the Greek, a python spirit. Um, now, why does the English translate it as a spirit that predicts the future? Here's why. Um, in Greek mythology, python was like a serpent dragon uh, mythological creature that was slain by the god Apollo, the Greek god Apollo. And uh, the, the city, the famous Greek city Delphi. Have you heard of Delphi, the oracle at Delphi, all that stuff, maybe? So Delphi, the city's original name was Pytho. And Delphi had this, uh, this temple to Apollo. It was one of the more famous temples in the ancient world. The high priestess of that temple was the Oracle of Delphi. When you hear about the Oracle of Delphi, it was the high priestess at the temple of Apollo in, in Delphi formerly known as Pytho. And, and what the, the high priestess there in the temple would do is, is that she would receive uh, oracles, uh, reportedly, from the god Apollo. And these oracles would sometimes be, you know, telling the future for people. So visitors would come to the temple. The oracle of Delphi would, would communicate these messages. The oracle of Delphi, the high priestess of the temple, her other name was the Pythia. Connecting back to this whole kind of uh, lore about Apollo and Python and this whole connection between them and this delivering of messages. So if you just read that she had a Python spirit, in the, you probably wouldn't get any of that, right? So the English translation goes, it's a spirit that predicts the future. But that's what it's saying, is that this spirit is somehow connected to that whole thing that happens in Delphi, the oracle there. It's the same kind of thing going on. Now, the way Luke tells it, it seems that this girl's ability to predict the future actually was, it seems, legitimate. It seems from Luke's account, it wasn't, it wasn't a sham. Like, it seemed like she actually could do this. 
because there was some kind of empowerment taking place. Now, the question is, what was the nature of this empowerment? What kind of spirit was this? Was it actually the God Apollo speaking through her? And, and uh, Paul in, in 1 Corinthians, he's got this interesting little line. And in Corinth, was an, it was another Greek city. They had some exposure to the whole Delphi, Oracle, Apollo thing as well. And, uh, and Paul says to the Corinthians, is an idol anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I, w- I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul's saying, look, if you, if you make a t- an idol to Apollo, does that mean that there's actually a God named Apollo chilling out somewhere above the clouds? No. But there is a spiritual reality kind of undergirding that idol. There is a spiritual reality behind the scenes. It's not Apollo. It's actually, it's actually demonic. You see, what we see in the Bible is that idols, which are false gods, created things, made up things even, that rule someone's life, that idols are like the mask that demons wear. That the demonic, evil spiritual forces love to enslave people to idols because if you can enslave somebody to an idol, they're not worshiping the one true God, right? They've put their trust in something else. You've cut them off from God, which is what the demonic really wants to do. So idolatry, very, very closely connected with, uh, with, with the demonic. And, and what we see here, apparently, is that the demonic actually has some ability, it might be surprising to us, has some ability to actually predict the future. Uh, and, and some people uh, suggest that maybe that's because Philippi is, is so much under the grip of evil before Paul and his friends show up that there is just this, they have such control over what takes place there. They're, they're actually able to say something about the future. And, and you know, in the Bible we read that, that the devil is the prince of this world. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 2 says he's the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That, that, that Satan actually has some authority and power in this, in this world and can perform counterfeit signs of spiritual power, like fortune-telling, for example. And so it actually maybe, maybe shouldn't be a shock to us if sometimes, let's say, a psychic or an astrologist or something like that might actually get something right every now and then because it would seem that the demonic does have this ability to perform counterfeit signs. Be wise, be discerning. Now, I'll just tell you, you know, I believe that what Luke says here in Acts absolutely reflects the reality today as well. I don't think that this was just a first century superstitious primitive society kind of thing. Spiritual, evil spiritual forces haven't gone anywhere. They're still at work. They're at work, believe it or not, in Deep Cove. They're at work in North Vancouver. Wherever there's idolatry, wherever there is this bondage to false gods, there is demonic forces at work. What Paul says in Ephesians is no less true today than it was back then, which is that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's still the case today. 
Uh, Peter in his letter says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. The guy is a fiend. He will devour, he will destroy, he will divide. Anytime the kingdom of God advances, he will push back with all his might. That's still the case. Don't be blind to it. Be alert to it. Recognize it. It's like uh, Kevin Spacey's character in The Usual Suspect says that the, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. It may be more overt, Demonic presence might be more overt in countries where idol worship is more overt, but it's no less present here and now. Now, this, um, the spirit in this girl not only has the ability to somehow kind of tell the future, but she has this, this ability, uh, this supernatural revelation. She looks at Paul and these other guys, and she knows who they are. So she follows them around at the behest of the spirit, saying to everybody, look at these guys! They are servants of the Most High God. They're telling you how to be saved. Which at first glance, you're like, well, that seems good, right? Like, it seems like she's saying the right thing. Like, why would they, why would they be opposed to this? She's identifying who they are. A couple thoughts. One is that what she says is close enough. This is the tricky thing about evil sometimes, isn't it? It's close enough to the truth to, be, to have credibility but it's just off enough that it can actually undermine the whole thing. So, uh, so Most High God is a title that's used sparingly of the God of the Bible, but it's also a term that's used a lot in ancient pagan religion to describe the highest God in the pantheon, among other gods. Usually it was, it was used to describe Zeus. So people are probably hearing her and going, oh, these guys are talking about Zeus. That's what they would think of with Most High God. Salvation is another kind of ambiguous term that could, could kind of mean a lot of different things. And not only that, but in the Greek, there's no word the, the way to be saved. Instead, it's, it's, it's like, probably be better translated as a way to be saved, one way among many. So, so she's, you know, she's saying things that are a little deceptive, just a little bit off. And then there's the whole issue with association. Right? If, if people think that this spirit in this slave girl is the same as this Jesus that Paul and others are talking about, if they think that they're together, that's not going to be good. That's not a situation that Paul wants. So he finally gets really annoyed, which I think you would be annoyed too, wouldn't you? If I'm walking around and someone's following me like in public going, that's Craig, he's the lead pastor of the Bridge Church, everybody. Just so you know, he's the lead pastor of the Bridge Church. I get a little bit annoyed with that, right? And now when I get annoyed, here's what I do. I go for a drive and I get into an MMA fight with my passenger seats. You know, that's, that's what I do. And I win every time. The seat is really bad at fighting back. I give it elbows, punches. Kicks are a little bit difficult when you're driving. But, um, you know, I, that's what I do when I'm annoyed. Paul does something a lot more productive. <laughs> he turns around and he just rebukes this spirit in the name of of Jesus. It's this, it's this showdown, this spiritual showdown. And actually, it's not much of a fight. It's about the same kind of fight as me in my chair, um, where, where the demon just, he, he, he's sent fleeing. He's done. He's, he's gone. But it's this like big, dramatic, public thing, right? Where she's yelling and shouting, and Paul turns around and rebukes her, and the, and the, and the spirit goes fleeing from there. And, and then the consequences, the outcomes of it, 
even louder, even messier, even more chaotic. Because right away, these, these slave owners realize, oh, this is not good. Our, our source of income has been wiped out. And this is just the deep, deep evil in slavery that she's not producing. She's worthless to us. And, uh, and, and, and they've, they've, they're enraged, and they feel like, well, we got to share this rage, right? Because caring is sharing, right? So, so they want to they share this anger. They want to get other people riled up with them, too, and they figure out exactly how to do it. They haul Paul and Silas before the magistrates, and they make this inflammatory claim that they know this is what you need to do to get people riled up in Philippi. These guys are anti-Roman. See, they're, they're telling us to do things that we're not supposed to do as Romans, to believe things we're not supposed to believe. And, and that's like, I mean, these, remember, these are tough guys, right? These are like ex-military guys. Philippi is full of soldiers. This is not where you want to tick people off. It's like you walk into a biker bar and you walk up to a bunch of these bikers with like tats and handlebar mustaches and you just like start saying bad things about their moms. You know, like, that's not the button you want to press, that's the button that these guys press for Paul and Silas right now. You don't make fun of Rome. You don't tell us to be disloyal to Rome. And so the crowd is whipped up in a frenzy. And then you get this whole dynamic where the authorities, this is what happens again and again, isn't it? You get this, you see this, this cycle where, 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 where somebody gets offended and then they rile everybody up. The crowd gets whipped into a frenzy, not on the basis of a careful hearing of what this person actually said. They might not have heard, of, heard anything they said. It's just a rumor. It's hearsay. It's a misconception. And so the crowd gets worked up. And then this is what the authorities have to do. They have to match the intensity of the crowds. Because if they don't, their own, their own loyalty to the cause will be questioned. And so they've got to match the intensity. They've got to dish out punishment, right? So all of a sudden, you know, someone's in Twitter jail. Somebody's banned from social media, whatever it is these days. Here it's a little bit more serious. But it's the same kind of cycle where it's just this like frenzy. The authorities respond quickly in kind. And all of a sudden, Paul and Silas have been beaten. They've been thrown into prison, all the rest. Now, um, I just there's a little, little historical thought here that's fresh for me because it, it's kind of from a book that I just read. It's interesting to think about why, why Paul and Silas were so threatening. Why Christians seem so threatening to society in the first century world. Because, because the Jews were kind of a known group of people in the Roman Empire. A lot of people knew a Jew, had, had interactions with them. And the Romans saw the Jews as being a very strange group of people. Primarily because they didn't worship all the Roman gods. They had this strange insistence on only worshiping their one God. That seems so strange, so incomprehensible to the Romans. But they could kind of put up with it. They could deal with it because the Jews were like their own distinct kind of ethnic group. And, and they kind of kept to themselves. So it's kind of like an idiosyncrasy. It's kind of weird, but whatever. It's those people over there. What made Christians so threatening was that increasingly it wasn't, you couldn't just dismiss it as a like those people over there kind of thing. Because you had many, many Gentiles becoming Christians. You had people like Lydia who are becoming Christians. Others, the Philippian jailer is going to become a Christian. You got all kinds of different people who are coming to faith in Jesus. It's not just one ethnic group. And here's the worst part. They want everybody else to become Christians too. 
They think that everybody should actually follow Jesus. So they're not keeping to themselves. They're not trying to pull a coup. They're not trying to overthrow Caesar. But they do want people to know about Jesus and follow him. And this is deeply, deeply threatening. Because if people become Christians, then they're going to bow out of the whole Roman financial temple idol complex kind of thing. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause people to betray everything that makes Romans Roman. And so it's this, it's this immense threat to the very fabric of society in a place like Philippi. Because anyone can become a Christian. They want everyone to become a Christian, and it's starting to happen. And I tell you, sometimes Christians are seen as threatening in society today for all the wrong reasons. But there is a good reason. There's a very good reason for Christians to, to appear threatening in society, and that is if Christians today, just like in the first century, were similarly filled with the Holy Spirit and similarly contagious in their faith. Not, not trying to do the top-down thing, but it, if, if it just kind of spread and you had more and more people just kind of bowing out of all of this kind of modern Western cultural thing that we've got going on, that, that would actually kind of appear threatening. And, uh, and you might see even more anger and vitriol. Let's pray for that, right? <laughs> that's, that's, that's actually what we would want to see. But that's kind of what we see happening in Philippi. Now, now back to this girl. So uh, put yourself in her shoes, right? She, she, has, uh, she has been in bondage to this, this spirit, this demon, for a long time. And, and she's at the behest of the spirit, following these guys around, yelling and shouting at them. And then suddenly one of those guys turns around, invokes the name of someone named Jesus, and you're, you're, you're set free. This, this burden is lifted. You can breathe again. You know, you, you have power over your own mind again. I, I believe 100%. Luke doesn't tell us what happened with this girl I believe that she was brought to salvation in Jesus. That's usually what happened. Somebody, somebody was liberated by the power of Jesus. They put their trust in him. And if that's true, and I really believe it is, I mean, the, the, the circumstances of her coming to faith are, they're messy, aren't they? Like so chaotic, so loud, so noisy, so public. This very public showdown, spiritual showdown, and then the guys who are instrumental in her liberation are beaten up and flogged and thrown into prison, and this is how you became a Christian? What a testimony, right? See, God, God saved Lydia through a whisper, a gentle wooing voice of the Spirit. God saves this girl through, like, a hurricane. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so different. And, and, and this is what I mean when I, when I think about how God is the God of the wind and he's the God of the whisper. We see this in the scriptures. Uh, Elijah the prophet, he, uh, he's despairing, he's discouraged, and he experiences this wind that rips the mountains apart, shatters the rocks. But First Kings tells us the Lord wasn't in the wind. Instead, moments later, he hears a, a quiet whisper. That's, that's how God came to him, how he spoke to him. But then on the other hand, you've got Acts chapter 2, where, where the disciples are gathered together in a home, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. It's the God of the wind and the whisper. Uh, think about Jesus even. I mean, you see Jesus uh, tender, meek, and mild, calling the children to himself, weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. 
But then also, in a different circumstance, going into the temple and just overturning tables, sending people fleeing, driving corrupt money changers out of there. He's capable of wind and whisper. That's who he is. And this has implications in a number of different ways. It's, it's got an implication for our testimonies, for example. Whenever we do a, a baptism here at the bridge, we hear a testimony like we did earlier today. And sometimes those testimonies are really dramatic, right? Like somebody was addicted to drugs. Somebody was like a hardcore atheist. Uh, Christina's testimony is fairly dramatic. I mean, being five, six years old, abandoned by parents, near death in the hospital, before being supernaturally, miraculously healed and being adopted by a missionary family. I mean, it's incredible, right? Those are, um, those are like the windy testimonies, we could say. Paul had a windy testimony, right? I mean, he was a persecutor of Christians, struck by a blinding light on the road to Damascus, becomes a preacher, a church planter, an author, this dramatic turnaround. That, those, are the, those are the windy testimonies. But then there are other people who just kind of grew up in the faith, right? They grew up in a Christian home, never really had this big moment of rebellion or anything like that. There were some key moments that kind of brought them deeper in faith in Jesus, but it was kind of this like slow, gradual thing. I actually wonder if Paul's protege, Timothy, had a testimony like that. We know that his mother was a believer, his grandmother was a believer, that he was identified as a leader, as a young adult already. I think Timothy grew up in the faith. We could call these whisper testimonies. I've got a whisper testimony. And what happens sometimes is that the whisper testimony people feel inferior to the windy testimony people, right? where they kind of almost feel ashamed and embarrassed that they don't have something more dramatic to say, that their faith was just kind of this like gradual building over the course of their lives. And like, oh, God can't use me because I don't have a testimony like that over there. But listen, God is the God of the whisper and the wind. He's no less the God of one than the other. Are you going to tell me that Lydia was any less of a servant, any less used by God, any less of a follower of Jesus, because God saved her in a different way than he saved this, this demon-possessed slave girl? No way. And I think this is true of our, of our personalities, too. There are, like, windy people, right? The, oh, Yeah. <laughs> There, there are people who are loud and passionate and charismatic and they hate these seats because they can't dance around. They need like a 20-foot radius in worship, you know? And like that's just, that's just who they are. And, and then you got the whisper people who are, who are sincere, but, but, they're, but they're, they're a bit quieter and a bit more reserved and a bit more thoughtful in their approach. And, and here what happens is that the windy people sometimes look at the whisper people and they say, I don't think you're really, I don't think you're really that passionate. I don't think you love Jesus as much as I do. And the whisper people look at the windy people and say, yeah, well, you're just faking it. It's all a show. <laughs> Listen, you got to have both. It's a blessing for a church to have both kinds of people. You benefit from both. You need to listen to both. You need to make room for both. A church should have both kinds of people and everyone in between without judging one or the other as being insincere or lacking in, in their faith. See, this, this is what I love about the church in Philippi is that you, you see this incredible diversity. 
look at the look at the people that you meet who are coming to faith in Jesus. You've got you've got this um, you've got Lydia, right? Successful, independent businesswoman, wooing of the spirit. You've got this demon possessed slave girl who is who is delivered in the most dramatic and public of ways. And then you have this Philippian jailer. We're going to read about him next week. We're going to look at him. But, but he's probably one of these ex-military tough guys. And he and his household come to faith in Jesus too. You just have these wildly different personalities and different stories, different testimonies, different ways that God is speaking to them and bringing them to himself. The, the uniting factor, as always, is Jesus. That Jesus meets each one of them he speaks to them in different ways, but, but he brings about the same fruit of repentance. He brings about that same soft heart that we've been talking about all, all month. He's, he's bringing about the same fruit of the Holy Spirit in each life, and he's still doing it today. This is the incredible thing about being part of a church, being part of the family of Christ, is that still, 2,000 years later, Jesus is bringing people together, men and women, young and old, from so many different cultures, so many different personalities, so many different stories, and he brings them together in a shared kind of surrender and faith in him. It's beautiful. He's the God of the wind and the God of the whisper. Let's, uh, let's pray and then continue to praise him and, and seek his work in our lives. God, I thank you again so much for the gift of the church. It's not perfect. There's lots of brokenness, Lord, and because of our differences, sometimes it's really not easy. But I thank you, Jesus, that you are Lord that you are the head of the church and that your Holy Spirit is the one that ties us together across all of these differences. God, thank you so much. And I pray today, Lord, maybe there are people here who um, have felt insecure, inferior, less than because they didn't have the same kind of personality or testimony as somebody else. And I pray that today, Lord, you would just set them free from that. That you would show them that your purposes for them, your ability to work in them and through them, is by no means limited because of their testimony or their personality or their cultural background or any of that. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us, each one of us, Lord, Speak to us. Visit us however you see fit. And empower us, Lord, all of us. Different parts of the body, different gifts, all of that, Lord. Empower us in this one mission to know you and make you known. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would encourage my brothers and sisters today. In Jesus' name, amen.